The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. Kia ora koutou katoa, and welcome to Business is Boring. Self-driving cars are promising to be a big part of the future. And while a lot of attention is paid to leaders in self-driving passenger vehicles, one US company with a Kiwi leader has got on with building out self-driving delivery vehicles that are on the road in US cities delivering goods and working with some of the biggest retailers there today. Dave Ferguson is a Wellington boy who studied in Dunedin, did his PhD in the States and worked on things like the Mars Rover before leading self-driving cars at Google. Six years ago, he co-founded Neuro, which to date has raised something like $2.7 billion of funding to bring their vision for a world where everyday life is bedded through robotics to reality. Dave Ferguson is in town for the Kia World Class New Zealand Awards and has come in to see us today. Thanks so much for being here. Tanakoi. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Hey, so tell me, what was it that got you interested in robotics in the first instance? I I went to university. I, I wasn't really big on uh, computers or, you know, very... I would say I wasn't, I wasn't mechanically inclined uh, as a kid, which often people ask. They're like, oh, you must have been building stuff uh, all throughout your childhood. Not really. I was mostly up trees and, uh, and getting into trouble. So it wasn't until university that I got my first taste of both computer science, really, and robotics. Uh, and it was, it was really a, a cute little Dalek-inspired robot that the department had down at Otago, where I did my undergrad. Uh, and I got to work on that robot and it was really through that project, and in particular, we were trying to get this robot to map indoor environments, um, and it was through working on that project that I got really, really excited about it. And, and I think largely the reason was we were able to teach this robot how to go off and do things completely on its own. And so effectively, once, once our work was done, it then traveled around and it did things by itself. It no longer had us holding its hand, so it made mistakes, it, made, it avoided mistakes, it, it did everything without us. And, and that, that opportunity to, to give another physical agent intelligence and then have it go and do stuff, sometimes it didn't seem that intelligent, but, but regardless, having it be able to go do things on its own was really, really exciting to me. And that sort of kicked off my entire career, I'd say, in robotics. That's so cool, like the way that... You know, you can have this agent be kind of a force multiplier for what you could achieve or do or get done or or dream for. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was very uh, very addictive, uh, I'd say as well. But but also just that experience and and that that followed me through multiple robotics projects that I worked on at uh, at CMU at Carnegie Mellon during my PhD and onwards. Right, seeing again and again. This example of robots going off and doing things on their own uh, was just really, it's a really thrilling experience. Yeah, so you mentioned there you went to the States then to do your PhD. 
what was that like as, uh, you know, coming from New Zealand and coming from this context and going and being at, you know, some of the great institutions um, studying in this field? It was it was a incredible experience. You know, I, I, I often characterize it as uh, Disney World for robotics nerds, uh, Carnegie Mellon in particular, the Robotics Institute. There are just so many different projects uh, involving robots that are going on. And and during my PhD, I, I was fortunate enough to be able to to play with a ton of them. Aerial vehicles, outdoor vehicles, indoor vehicles, huge vehicles, tiny vehicles. Um, and and all of them, uh, all of them in and themselves were, were a pretty great opportunity and, and a unique experience. And really getting to work with other people that were as passionate, some of them maybe even more passionate th- than me uh, around that area was just a real treat. And how do you chart a path to... You know, being, uh, you know, leading up work in self-driving cars for Google or contributing to projects for NASA and stuff. Like, they're such wonderful kind of um, storied names mm. and, uh, you know, the, the, the leading names in the world. How do you find yourselves in those companies or in those positions? Yeah, I, I think a lot of luck, uh, honestly, for for some of those you know, because Carnegie Mellon is such a leader in robotics, they do projects with a bunch of different organizations. So NASA, there's a lot of CMU alums at, at NASA. Um, they do a lot of projects with NASA and CMU. And so getting involved on the, the Mars rover side uh, and the work that we did with NASA was very much through my PhD uh, and then us collaborating with NASA on, on some of those projects. So, so that one was was probably a longstanding relationship that NASA has with CMU. They sort of know where to go to get robotics nerds to help contribute to uh, to projects that they're working on. For the Google side, that one is probably a, a bit longer a story. Uh, I think that, that that one started because the Defense Department in the U.S. staged this robotics competition called the Grand Challenge, or a c- series of these competitions. And the first two were robot races across the desert, and they really pushed the limits of how fast autonomous vehicles could go. It was sort of an order of magnitude or more faster than any autonomous vehicles had really traveled in the past. And they had these competitions and a lot of people got inspired and there were a lot of um, organizations that signed up for them. They then launched a third competition where they took it out of the desert and they tried to have robots race each other on city streets. And, you know, this was a closed course, uh, so it was a mock urban environment. But the idea was that robots had to abide by all of the rules of the road. So you had to stop at stop signs. You had to uh, abide by precedence logic and let other vehicles go first. You had speed limits. You obviously had to stay on the road. There was parking involved. It was sort of the whole shebang for urban slash suburban driving. Um, and I was part of the CMU team that, that competed in that, and that was in 2007. After that competition, a lot of us at the time thought, oh, we're, we're largely done, right? Now it's time <laughs> to just commercialize and scale this. Um, Google... I think the the founders of Google, I think Larry Page in particular, was at that competition in 2007, and he said, wow, this is really pretty exciting. This technology is further along than, than we thought. Why don't we start a project at Google to try to see how far we can push this and whether we could actually turn it into a commercialized scale uh, business, right, to realize some of the potential impact of this. And so in 2009, Google started this self-driving car project, 
Now, if you rewind back to 2009, there are very few organizations in the world that are doing anything like robotics. And I remember, you know, graduating a couple years earlier, your, your opportunities for doing robotics are, are largely academia, like going to work at a university somewhere, or a small number of companies that work with the defense department on some of the defense-related applications of that in the US, but very few opportunities in industry. And so when Google started this self-driving car project, they had sort of the pick of the litter in terms of choosing who, who to try to get to come join them. And so what they, what they were able to do was put together a real all-star team of people that had been uh, participants in that DARPA challenge from various universities, different organizations, and they were able to pull a whole bunch of them together at Google uh, to start this self-driving effort. So that was in 2009. I, I was not one of those all-stars on day one, um, but I joined a couple years later and you know had worked with a bunch of those folks in the past. And so from 2011, for me, from 2011 to 2016, I worked, uh, I worked on that project and it was an incredible experience and we made a ton of progress and uh, you know, it was it was a really fun uh, fun opportunity, and then in 2016, um, my co-founder now, uh, who was one of my colleagues at Google, who'd been there from from the start of that self-driving car project, uh, Jay Z, uh, we we collectively uh, created Neuro because we were really inspired and excited about what the future of robotics will be over the next couple decades, and in particular, we were convinced that. We're gonna, there's the opportunity for us to transform our relationship with the physical world, similar to what we've seen happen in the digital world over the last several decades. Uh, and we were excited about building a robotics company that would help, help accelerate that transformation and really help realize some of the many positive benefits we saw of having robotics in our day-to-day -day lives. And so Neuro's mission statement as a company is to better everyday life through robotics. And, and you'll notice... In that mission statement, there's nothing about delivery. There's nothing about self-driving per se. But when we started the company, we thought hard about what the best first application would be. And that was when we landed on self-driving delivery and local commerce. Tell me about that decision making there. As that's, you know, really fascinating to have come from an environment like Google, where you've got enormous resources and the support of people with huge visions and you're working on things that are right at the front of that industry. What led you to want to step out and um, do it under your own banner? And what's involved in doing something like that? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. What what on earth were we thinking? Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, So we were very, very excited about this, this long-term vision for robotics. Um, and, you know, Google was very focused on self-driving passenger transportation, which is an incredible opportunity. And, and you know, we're fully bought into that as well. Um, but we saw this opportunity to, to really push the envelope more on the robotic side, which was not something that, that Google was, was really focused on. And we also saw an opportunity to, to potentially build something that is, is hard to build within a big company. Right. There are, you mentioned a couple of them. There are some significant advantages uh, of being associated with a large company. Funding, um, you know, you have pretty strong talent already, a lot of the infrastructure already built. But there are also some challenges uh, in, in working on particularly new, very innovative, disruptive technology within a big company. And, and so some of those advantages that you get from being a startup are – 
your speed, speed of decision making, speed of 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 what, how quickly you can change what you're working on. So pivot to make sure that you're capturing the opportunities that you're after, and this focus, this sort of maniacal focus on what's really important, um, and in many cases, an existential. Um, focus because you know that if you get it wrong, you may not exist as a company, right? And I think that 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 really helps. You can think of that as pressure, but it also really helps drive everyone to be aligned and marching in the same direction and really caring about what you're doing and how you're doing it. And I think at a big company, you sometimes lose that, right? You sort of know, hey, if we try this and it doesn't work, well, that's okay. We've got all these other things, you know, Google. It's like, well, we've got search. That's making us approximately (laughs) infinite amount of money every year. Uh, It's sort of okay if these other things don't work. Whereas at a startup, I I think knowing that you're going to make or break the company based on whether you can figure these things out puts puts a level of clarity on the entire team uh, and obviously importance on what you're doing. And everyone realizes that what they're doing is really, really critical. It's really critical to the success of the company. And that, that can be an amazingly positive uh, attribute to have inside a company, right? It really, it, may, it gets everyone together. It, it strengthens the, the collaboration between people on the team. Uh, it ensures that everyone recognizes that what they're doing matters. Um, and so that, that focus is really a superpower of startups that is often hard to replicate in a big company. Some startups, you can get going around a kitchen table or in your garage. But when you're dealing with uh, self-driving vehicles of any kind or, you know, hardware or the the intersection of hardware, software, cities and regulation and people and all of that, I imagine that's a lot bigger of an ask to get a company up and going. How do you go out and, you know, what does it take to, to do the mission that you're on seriously from the beginning? Yes, it's it's interesting that you put it that way because we did actually start in an Airbnb house. You know, it was very much like the Silicon Valley um, HBO show. Uh, we were in a house and we had the garage was our hardware lab and we had cables sort of running through the house to, to the upstairs to plug into where our washing machine was because that's where we got 240 volts to charge the electric car that was in the garage. We had folks working on product in one bedroom, um, sensors in one, software in another. And so it really was very bootstrapped and very small to begin with. I mean, I think we recognize that, look, in order to bring this product to life, we're going to have to do an enormous amount, exactly as you mentioned. We're not going to have a dozen people that are going to produce a self-driving product. But we are going to have to make significant progress with a dozen people, um, which is roughly what the team was in the earliest days, so that we earn the right to then go on and build bigger and better things. And I think that, that, that that's always really important for, for any startup, right? I think coming out of the gate, you need to establish credibility and confidence in investors at each stage of the life of the company that the company is going to succeed at least on to the next stage, right? And so for us, in those early days, it was really important to figure out what we're doing, you know, figure out what application we wanted to work on, uh, rally around that, beat it up a little bit to make sure that we felt really good about it, and then start making some fundamental progress on some of the key technical and product and other um, angles of that uh, opportunity, and then go share that with investors and, and have them help us get to the next stage. And so it's really that that march from one step to the next, and, and how can we... How can we both de-risk the 
the company as much as possible in whatever remaining runway or time that we have based on the, the funding in our bank account? Um, and how can we set ourselves up uh, most effectively for raising the next round to enable us to continue that, that steady march? In that process of defining your idea, your part to bite off in that robotics to help people into the future, tell me what was exciting or you know what 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 really got you going about the idea of the opportunity in self-driving autonomous delivery vehicles is it such a cool kind of idea like self-driving cars you know you kind of look at it and you go oh yeah not nice in theory i don't know if i want to be in the first couple of models (laughs) (laughs) but delivery vehicles full of goods you're like oh cool go for it you know learn all you can yeah, so, so a couple things there, maybe just touching upon the last one. You know, I, I do think that we're, we're getting to the point now in the US with, with a couple self-driving passenger vehicle companies where they're almost ready to have the public ride in them. And you sort of alluded to this point, Simon, where there is a challenge that you need to hit a certain bar where people are comfortable putting themselves in the car or, or I, I, I like to use the, the example of putting your kids in the car. Like that, that's the point where you really trust the technology, where you're willing to put your kids in a self-driving car. I think we're not quite there yet, uh, quite honestly, but from a delivery application perspective, it's a much lower bar in terms of your personal comfort. Right, because the comfort level that you need to have in the technology for your child to order something online and then have it delivered by a self-driving vehicle is off, off obviously very different from the comfort level you need to put that child in the car and have it drive around. And so we do see that as a, as a pretty significant difference from a public acceptance perspective, or at least an in-consumer acceptance perspective. Now, the first part of that question you're asking, why, why, was I, why were we excited about self-driving delivery vehicles? There are a number of things that excited us and six years on still really excite me. Um, when we considered this overall application, there were, there were a couple angles that were really compelling. So first is the societal benefit. So in the U.S., if we just focus on the U.S. market uh, for starters, there are 93 billion personal vehicle trips that are taken every year in the U.S. for shopping and running errands. So almost 100 billion trips that are taken. And really, if you had a service that could do that shopping or run those errands for you instead of you needing to do it yourself, you could reduce or or entirely eliminate those 93 billion trips. That's a massive, massive cost to people in terms of time, in terms of safety, in terms of effort. From a time perspective, it works out to something like roughly 150 hours per year. So almost half an hour a day per person uh, in the US, right? So that's just an enormous waste. Uh, And if you think about that being time on top of everything else that you have at the end of your day, it's really the best possible leisure time. You know, getting that time back would would be a tremendous, uh, tremendous improvement. Uh, If you then couple that with the fact that in the US, the most popular vehicle, I believe, is still the Ford F-150 pickup truck. Um, you're driving a pickup truck to go collect your dinner or a gallon of milk from the grocery store. You know, replacing that with electric, small, very safe vehicles uh, also has massive sustainability impact. You know, 27% of all emissions are transportation. Uh, so really replacing that with an electric fleet and trying to optimize how we do that is going to have really significant uh, contributions on on sustainability and and how we get the world to a better place uh, long term. And then, 
I, I think that beyond just the, the sort of societal, there's the market opportunity, obviously, almost 100 billion trips. That's a massive, massive market. We estimate it between half a trillion and a trillion dollars a year just in the US. These are big numbers. Uh, and then finally, from a technical readiness perspective. So we sort of looked at societal impact, uh, the overall market opportunity, and then the technical readiness. We, we believe that we could solve this problem and build a product that could provide the self-driving delivery on a time frame that is not decades but years, right? We didn't want to go work on something that would take 20 years before we had a real product. Uh, we wanted it to be more like five, five to 10. Uh, and so we sort of combined those three and it looked like a really, really great opportunity. But I will say beyond that, that, that is almost like today's opportunity. I think beyond that, what's really exciting about self-driving in general and self-driving delivery in particular is that I, I fundamentally believe it's going to change our model of consumption, so in the U.S. in particular, if you think about how people shop for, say, groceries, we tend to overshop, right? So we have huge kitchens, we have huge pantries and fridges, and we go shopping once a week or once every two weeks, and we buy an incredible amount of stuff, and then we effectively stockpile it at home. And then in the U.S., we have a massive problem around food waste. Something like 30% of all food is wasted, which... You know, it, when you've heard that enough times, it, it sounds, oh, yeah, 30%, it sounds normal. That's insane. Yeah, yeah. That's insane <laughs> that almost a third of all of our food is wasted. Um, and, and so if you had a service that you could rely on to bring you things when you need it and incredibly quickly, like on demand – then you could shift away from this model of effectively stockpiling stuff at home. You don't need a grocery store at home if you know that whenever you want something, you can have it. And so if we can get it to you sustainably and on demand, and we can now reduce how much stuff you're stockpiling, you no longer need to buy green bananas or have a, an entire grocery store uh, stocked in your kitchen. And so that, we hope, can significantly reduce the amount of overall consumption that's going on and certainly reduce the amount of waste uh, that we're getting from food. And so this shift, you know, in, in many ways, it makes, the, it makes the U.S. look a little bit more like Europe with smaller kitchens and smaller stuff and people shopping more frequently and getting fresher food. Um, but we think that there's, there's a really positive um, transformation that we'll see in consumption. Another, another big problem that we have in the U.S. Um, that's it's less so in New Zealand, but, but in the U.S. it's a real problem. 20 million people live in what we um, – what we classify as a food desert in the U.S. So basically 20 million people live in a location where they don't have access to fresh food because the closest grocery store is too far away, right? They, they don't have a car. They don't have public transportation that can get them there. And so 20 million people don't have good, healthy food options today. And if we can provide a service, we or the industry in general can provide a service that can provide what we like to call free local teleportation uh, to those areas, then all of a sudden we can potentially solve these problems and provide an opportunity for everyone in the country to have access to fresh, healthier food uh, for them and their families. Yeah, it's amazing. And the scale and scope of it today, after all of the tailwinds of the pandemic and delivery and the increase in digital shopping. Sounds very, oh, of course it is. But six years ago, you know, outside of, I guess, um, 
standing on a corner in Shanghai. You know, a lot of the stuff was very far in the future. And yeah, like, and, and, and when you were saying be more like Europe, it's kind of like being more like China as well at the moment where there's an enormous amount of delivery that's been made visible in a city because it's been put on scooters. And so you can see how it's all going. And it feels like you're part of kind of a termite mound of, you know, humanity doing these cool things. But it's not safe or particularly... Um, green, greenish, I guess, uh, and uses a lot of people. Yeah, exactly. And, and I do think China China has, has been actually a pretty strong example from the market opportunity perspective, because you're right, it is very manual there. For the most part, it's been very manual there. But the amount of delivery that happens in China, because the cost of labor relative to the cost of goods is so low, the amount of delivery we see there is far, far higher. And so when we were in the very early days of Neuron, we we're talking to investors and they're like, well, how big is this? Is the market um, compared to where we are today? We would often point to China and we'd say, look, if, if, if you need further reassurance of what a market looks like when the cost of delivery is, is relatively low, just look to China. It's totally exploded. It's orders of magnitude higher than what we see in the US. Um, and so that has been a pretty useful example around uh, sort of consumers' interest in general and having things delivered to them. Now, the challenge is that we need to figure out how to make that economically and uh, environmentally sustainable. And that's where the self-driving uh, fleets of electric vehicles comes in. And we'll be back in a moment with Dave Ferguson of Neuro to hear how they built their company. Spark is proud to partner with the Sustainable Business Network and the Climate Action Toolbox. The free Climate Action Toolbox can provide you with simple step-by-step guides to measure and reduce your emissions. Help lead the way to a low-carbon future for New Zealand. Visit sparklab.co.nz forward slash sustainability to find out more. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. And we're back with Dave Ferguson of Neuro. So tell us what stage is the company at today, kind of six years odd into your vision, What's happening in the real world? What do you what What's on the streets, and uh, what, what are people interacting with now? So we're we're on our third generation custom vehicle. So as a company, we built because we're transporting goods only. We had the opportunity to design on road vehicles that were specifically tailored to only transport stuff, not people. And that gave us a lot of flexibility around how big the vehicle is, what it looks like, what it has, what it doesn't have, um, as well as uh, additional opportunity to add safety features. Like we have external airbags on the front of our vehicles, uh, which is which is That's quite uncommon. Cool. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. As, um, as a cyclist, uh, I love that idea. Exactly. And so, so we're on our third third generation. The one that we're on now is going to be a mass manufacturable vehicle. So it, it will, in many ways, be the cavalry for us. We we can and intend to build tens or hundreds of thousands of those vehicles and use them to scale the service. So that's one big area that, that we've spent a lot of time on, um, and we're currently validating that third generation. So that's on the hardware side. On the software side and, and the general autonomy development, we're in parallel building out the, the brains and the driver of, of those vehicles so that it can handle all of the range of scenarios that might be thrown at it for us to scale across multiple geographies within the US. And and so far, six years in, you know, we've we've had a number of milestones on the autonomy side. We've had both our first and our second generation vehicles operate fully autonomously on public roads, so full driverless operation. Uh, that obviously requires a lot of effort because you have to get to the point where you're comfortable that the vehicle is safe, safe enough to be operating on roads entirely under its own control so that if anything happens, it will be able to handle it. Um, so that's a pretty massive milestone on the technical side. And, and then you know, alongside those two, we also have regulatory and then all of the other company building uh, challenges around operations. We want to make sure that we're ready to actually scale our service um, and we have partnerships and we have the right partners in place to be able to, to commercialize it. And so on the partnership side in particular, We've been operating a, a commercial delivery service with our longest-running partner, Kroger, is the world's largest grocer, for four years now. So for four years, we've been operating a commercial delivery service. The way we do that is that we, we use our self-driving Prius vehicles. So in addition to our custom vehicles, we have regular Prius vehicles that we've turned into self-driving vehicles. So they have the same sensing, the same compute, the same brains, effectively, as our custom vehicles. But because we can put people in them, we can do early testing with those because we have effectively the person as a backup. So we can do put a safety driver in there. We can do early testing. We can also use them for doing delivery and for scaling our commercialized uh, operations. And so we do that with a bunch of our partners. We then also incorporate our custom vehicles, of which we have fewer, but we're but are very exciting, right? So we incorporate those into our delivery service as well. And all of these threads were sort of moving in parallel so that when we have the large-scale vehicle numbers available, we're ready to then deploy them and scale them. And that will be happening over the next one to two years. What does that future look like, Dave? Like, is that like a dedicated lane? Because being, you know, in amongst traffic and flow is kind of like the altitude training for self-driving. Hey, <laughs> like, is probably it's going to be better if you've got dedicated lanes that can just go hell for leather instead of having to worry about people crossing the road or something. Like, do you see uh, our infrastructure of cities looking differently? Do we have um, neuro lanes that go to the neuro box in every apartment building? Uh, yeah, what does it look like? You know, we've, we've taken the approach, and I think largely the field has converged on this, that infrastructure changes are very challenging, right? If, if you're waiting on infrastructure changing to be able to deploy a service, you might be waiting a very long time. And so we're, we're designing the technology to handle all of the challenges of normal driving. So similar to when you jump in your car and are driving on the roads, we want our system to be able to handle everything that, that you could so that there aren't any additional requirements on infrastructure. Now, 
If such lanes existed, that would be fantastic. It certainly makes the problem much, much easier having a dedicated lane. Uh, it, it could provide additional opportunities around efficiency and speed and whatnot. But I, I think it's a lot to ask of local municipalities, whether in New Zealand or the US or frankly anywhere, for them to completely change the way that they've designed cities and suburbs and where people live to uh, to optimize for self-driving vehicles. And so I think longer term, let's optimize the vehicles for the built environment as opposed to vice versa. And as long as we can solve that technical challenge, that feels like the right the right way to go. A lot of real estate sitting in car parks. <laughs> there's, yeah. there's a lot of road that's not really utilized. It's remarkable what you can do, perhaps. Well, I, d- I do think, and this is another one of those longer term, uh, really interesting opportunities that self-driving cars present, right? If we can get to a world where there's no real benefit in you owning a vehicle, um, then obviously we can reduce the number of vehicles, we can better optimize our use of resources. But beyond that, there are also additional potential benefits, right? If you if you no longer need to own a vehicle to, to live your life, then you probably no longer need a garage or a driveway. And you maybe no longer need a road outside your house. And now all of a sudden, if you think about real estate, as you mentioned, and all of the land and the use case uh, or how we're using land across across the world, but particularly in cities, you can do a whole lot more. And suddenly you could imagine that every other block is just pedestrian only and there are no longer driveways and there are no longer garages, which also take an enormous amount of space. And suddenly uh, you, you start to, to get neighborhoods and even city centers that look quite different from how they do today and quite a lot better, frankly, if, if we're able to get there. That is a really exciting kind of future. How far away are we from, you know, with your experience in the space, that kind of self-driving world? As, you know, there's lots of people who maybe make businesses out of promising it's just around the corner, but it doesn't quite materialise. Uh, but, you know, we're in this amazing state at the moment where it's, it's, it's at once absolutely miraculous what is being done at the moment mm. um, on any kind of reasonable level. But people are saying, but that's not really self driving autonomous vehicles? I, I think we've seen, and, and, you know, I mentioned 2007, 15 years ago, we thought, oh, we're largely there. It's now time to commercialise. And, you know, today I'll tell you again, we're largely there. I think we're almost ready to commercialise. Uh, so you should take, take it with a grain of salt. But we have seen some pretty tremendous uh, milestones over the last few years. And I think in particular, this milestone of having vehicles operating on public roads, even if it is in a you know, relatively small area, like one city or one neighborhood or a few neighborhoods, that's still a huge hurdle that has been overcome. Because when when a company is at that point, it's effectively saying we're confident in the safety and performance of the system for it to be out there in the world and to experience anything that the world could throw at it, albeit in this specific area. Um, and so that is in many ways sort of a zero to one moment. And so I do think that's a pretty big deal. Yes, we're not yet at the point where it's operating in New York City um, or across the entire US or in Auckland or you know across all of New Zealand. But but I do think this, the the jump from where we are today in operating in some areas, like there are some vehicles in San Francisco that are operating already, the leap from that to broader scale, I think is actually a much smaller leap than from 
in the lab to the first time we have driverless vehicles out on the roads. So, you know, that, that might be a, a, an unsatisfying answer, but, but I do yep. think 10 years from now, I'd be very surprised if we don't have widespread adoption of self-driving vehicles in a huge number of regions, if not the vast majority of areas in, in sort of the Western world. And this is something that you've really built out the infrastructure for by being one of the leaders, one of the most um, capitalised companies and able to do this. What does it take to raise capital on levels like that as, you know, b- billions of dollars? Like, they're numbers that are almost hard to kind of comprehend. Um, and what, what does that mean for you as a founder and a person who's making billions of promises? Yeah, I mean, it, the numbers do seem crazy large, right? When I talk to people and they're like, wow, you've raised how much? Um, I I think it has to sort of be followed up with, yeah, and we've spent how much as well. Uh, It is a very capital intensive undertaking to to do something like this. And, And, you know, we've been very fortunate to have very strong financial support. I think the reason why we have that is that the opportunity is just so large. I mentioned earlier, sort of a half trillion to a trillion dollar a year opportunity just in the US. Um, If we can get this right, when we get this right, uh, it's going to be a tremendously large market. And so from an investor perspective, they, they look at it and they say, well, do we believe that this team has the potential to be able to realize this opportunity and and to deliver on this? And if so, we're willing to to put a bet on that company. Now, you know, they're making a lot of bets across a lot of different industries. Typically, you know, a lot of the investors we have are incredibly strong investors that have diversified portfolios. But but effectively they're realizing that the market and what the eventual um, outcome of all this technology will be is so large that it warrants significant investment in this, even in the earlier stages, uh, even though it is a you know, very capital intensive business. And in terms of being able to keep building out the front, like you've been at the front of this for, you know, de- decades nearly, you know, which is like really cool. What does it take as a leader to grow a company, but also grow the technology and the regulatory um, situation that you're allowed to do stuff and all of the things that are required to, 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 to do a kind of like change in the technology of the world? I think the, the biggest thing for us is really focusing on the team. As you sort of nailed it, there are so many things that we have to get right. And, and Jay-Z, my co-founder and I, you know, we're very much software background. So when we started the company, we're like, well, we feel reasonably confident we can build a strong software team. Okay, what about the rest? Uh, and so really it's about getting the right people in place that can then help build the right teams that can then solve all of the problems that you have, right? And, and then I think from a leadership perspective, it's also really useful if, if you're sort of generally curious and interested in all of the different areas, right? I think if, if you start a company like Neuro that is going to have to deal with challenges across software, hardware, ops, commercialization, partnership, regulatory, you know, we can go on and on and on, then I think it's really important that, that you're interested in all of those different areas too. Because if, if you're someone that's only interested in software and yet the company that you're building is going to have fundamental challenges and is going to have to invest heavily in all of these other areas, then I think that, that that's a mismatch that's going to be a little bit hard to, to deal with. So I think one of the things that that 
you know, Jay-Z and I have been fortunate enough to experience is that we're, we're both pretty interested in all of, all of these things. Like on the regulatory side, it's really interesting looking at what the motor vehicle code says uh, in terms of the requirements on a vehicle and, and then looking at that from the perspective of self-driving because it's obviously was not written uh, accounting for, for self-driving vehicles. And so you're looking at things like seat belts and side mirrors um, and steering wheels that make an enormous amount of sense when you have someone sitting in the car but make very little sense when you don't. And looking at that through the lens of, well, how can we be creative and try to figure out a path around this or working with regulators to to solve this challenge and treating that like any other challenge that you have on the technical side and, and trying to, to understand what the opportunities are to, to accomplish it. When you're working in something like this that, you know, the very design of cars, like, you know, you wouldn't have people sitting facing a massive window full of glass, for example, <laughs> if you were properly self-driving. But that those kind of changes are so hard for people and cultures to, you know, take it first. And um, Elon Musk, you know, saying that he wished that every time a car from another maker had a crash, it ended up on the front page because it's so, so normalised car crashes anywhere else. But the burden of uh, the, the way that you're looked at is so much stronger when you're doing something new and alien. And, uh, how's that for you and how do you manage that? We've we've tried very hard to, in particular in the design of our vehicles, to, to make them as non-threatening um, and approachable as possible. And, and I think this is, this is one of the opportunities that we had, right? We're, we're creating an entirely new class of vehicle and that vehicle is going to be used in a service as opposed to being owned by individuals. And so if you think about car design, often cars are, cars are designed to appeal to consumers that own them. And that often means that they're very aggressive, very sexy, like a Jaguar style, like an, the animal, not the car, but the car also, right? They're designed to be really cool and aggressive. For us, we wanted to step in a completely different direction. We said, look, we don't need you to think that it is the coolest, sexiest car out there. We would much prefer you to, to look at our vehicles and see them as non-threatening and neighborly and, uh, and very uh, friendly. And so we explicitly made the design less threatening and more friendly. And so th- that's one example of the type of thing that we've done as a company as a whole to try to appeal to folks and to, to help to help in the transition uh, in general of more robots and more autonomy and more autonomous vehicles being in, in people's lives. And so we've also reached out to communities in the areas that we operate, sort of local governments, the federal government, you know, across the board and trying to trying to make it clear why we think this is important and some of the real benefits that we think that we can provide communities um, across the board. And then also the responsibility and the commitment that we have to safety and making sure that we're operating in a really responsible way in every community that we operate. Yeah, it's a high barrier when you're doing something new. It's the status quo, like you mentioned before with the, the big Ford pickup trucks. That move to big pickup trucks means more children and more pedestrians are being hit, injured and killed. And people just accept it because we're all, you know, frogs in boiling pots. <laughs> but it takes a lot. And, and, and just to kind of like stretch out that thought as well, back to your original thought of the mission of the company. So this, if this is your first step, which, you know, <laughs> changes, uh, you know, people's relationships with shopping, kitchens, uh, travel, cars, 
what's the big vision for the for the company? <laughs> yeah, that, that seems that seems big enough, right? Yeah, I mean, long term. I mean, when we started the company, we we really wanted to make sure that we were building a company that could leverage the technology that that we invested in for a range of applications. And this is a huge one. We have to get this one right. This We have to nail this to effectively earn the right to work on other things later. But if you think about all the technology that we're going to build to solve self-driving, you, know, you sort of have real-time uh, very, very high-end machine learning and autonomy. We're building sensors. We're building hardware. We're building cloud infrastructure. We're, we're, we're building a lot of stuff. It would be almost a tragedy to not leverage all of that technology that we've already built to apply it to other applications. And, and you know, there's a lot of different robotics applications we could apply it to uh, and, you know, stay tuned for, for what those might look like. But everything from perhaps we help some of our partners on the fulfillment side. So right now we do deliveries for a lot of grocery stores. Maybe we can leverage our technology to help actually do fulfillment within those stores, the pick and packing to then get loaded into the robot. Maybe we can leverage the tech to get the groceries from the robot at the curb to your door or even into your house. Maybe we can leverage the technology to then work on robots that could assist you inside your home later. You know, we do think that there's a ton of different potential applications, but once we've solved this core technology, uh, it would be a shame not to use it for future applications that will also be incredibly uh, impactful. What would be your advice to people who want to work on an idea that is really big and is really ambitious? You know, I've, I've always thought that if you're going to, if you're going to do something, you might as well make it count. Right? And, and I think, I mean, you know, maybe, maybe this is why I've, I, I've, become a founder in, in starting Neuro. But, but for me, I think the cost of not trying something uh, is very, very high, right? And so I, I would much prefer giving something a shot and having there be a pretty significant chance that you fail. But if you succeed, that thing is incredibly meaningful, either to you or to the world. I'd much rather take that shot than to do something that's safe, but you know that the upside, the, the, the impact of it is going to be relatively low. Um, and now that obviously, that obviously changes for different folks depending on their risk tolerance. But, but for me, it's, it's always been pretty clear that I, I want to focus on things that, for which they would be incredibly meaningful if they succeeded and worry less about whether they succeed or not. And as a final thought, what will success be for you personally and for Neuro? Yeah, I think I think for me, if we can if we can really move the needle and and get to a place where we are having a significant positive impact on ideally millions of people, but as many people as possible on their lives, that will be a hugely fulfilling um, fulfilling outcome, both for me and for the company. And I think I'm very wrapped up in, in the company mission because obviously Jay-Z and I wrote it. Uh, it's something that we're very passionate about. But, but really, it's always been about what that outcome will be. You know, a lot of folks have asked us at various times along the journey of, oh, what if you could sell the company or what if this outcome? And we've always been laser focused on that impact, right? What is the best path for neuro to do the most good, frankly, in the world? And that has been our North Star. And if you look at almost all of the decisions, the key decisions for sure that we've made as a company, they, they've been very much directed towards that. 
That's so cool. Thank you for coming and sharing your story and that uh, vision for the future with us today. Uh, It's been a real pleasure having you on. That's Dave Ferguson, co-founder and president at Neuro. Thanks very much, Simon. So thank you to Dave Ferguson, to you for listening, and for everyone who helps make this happen, like our producer, Teihe Butler. Do follow Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to rate and leave a review if you like what we do. Enohora. From the Spinoff Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Kia ora e te iwi, te Ahe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.